verse 14, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself, but he says, in the house of God. And so that we've talked about the fact that the house of God is not a place of worship, but it's a people. And so in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning, he has already uh, encouraged Timothy in chapter 4 to take heed to himself and to the ministry and to the, to the doctrine, to what he's been taught, uh, not just to be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer also. But then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, uh, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. And so he says, don't speak harshly, essentially to anyone, but especially uh, to older men, to honor those who are older than you by the way that you treat them. He says, um, I put in my margin here, do not speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully. And you know as well as I do, if you've ever, ever interacted with somebody that's older than you and tried to teach them something, most of the time you don't have much to teach them because they've learned things that are beyond your years, literally. But also, many times, spiritually mature Christians aren't always the older Christians. Sometimes they're the younger, you know. And so how are we to teach someone that is older than us in a way that they will receive it? Well, Paul's writing to Timothy, who is a young man in the church, and he's teaching many times people that are at least older, 10 years older than him. And so how do you put the truth in a package that will be received by those who are meant to hear it? You know, you could obviously go in gunslinging and John Wayne and just say it like it is and you have to deal with it, or Clint Eastwood, you know. Um, but many times, if you start headbutting with somebody that's older than you, they're going to shut you down. They're going to build a wall, and they don't want to have anything, they don't want to hear anything you have to say. And many times it's because of what he's already taught us in chapter 4, which is don't let anybody despise you for your youthfulness or your lack of maturity. It takes maturity to realize that some people need to be approached not in a patronizing way, like, oh, you're so awesome. Now hear what I have to say. Um, I think somebody sometime called that a... Uh, I forget what the term is, but it's essentially like you give them a compliment. They probably teach you this in business school. Give them a compliment, then give them something they need to hear, and then continue and give them something nice again. You know, that doesn't always work with someone who's older than you because they see through it. They've already been, they took the same class. So approach them in a way that they'll receive it. Uh, speak, he says, respectfully. Exhort him as a father. He says, younger men. Treat them as brothers. Older women, treat them as mothers. Younger women, as sisters with all purity. But here's the problem, right? Here's the reality. How many of you, if you thought about the way you treated your sibling, you'd want to treat a brother in Christ the same way and feel like you'd get respected afterwards? You know, many of us don't know how to have right relationships in our families, so how does that relate to the body of Christ? Well, um... Here's the reality. We are a family in Christ. And I, I think in this particular verse, there's a given. And I have that bullet point there. It says it was a given that there was a certain way that you were to treat members of your own family. 
not to look at the culture and see how everyone treats everybody in a sitcom, because it's usually unbiblical, right? It's not going to be biblical, it's from the world. But it was implied in that day, not just by tradition, but by rote, that you would treat those who are in your family respectfully as if you were going to have to live with them in a way that they would be able to receive what you have to say to them. So that's implied, and it's implied especially in the life of a believer because we of all people ought to know that there is an order in the family. So he says you are to treat members of your family as a father or as mothers. So he's already implied in here that we are to honor our mother and father. Well, if you go with me um, to Exodus chapter 20, you'll know there that is the Ten Commandments. And the 12th verse actually has in there that we are to honor our mother and father. And what he told the Israelites is that there was a promise attached to this commandment. In Exodus chapter 12 verse, excuse me, chapter 20 verse 12, he says there, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. If you reject your parents' authority, more than likely your life is not going to be extended. It's going to be shorter. And uh, many of those are just practical things. Parents give us wisdom that's beyond our years. Uh, simple things like don't run out in the street. And complicated things like, you know, don't, don't get a triple mortgage, you know things that we don't really know about. They don't teach in school. Here's how to balance your checkbook. Um, don't speak harshly to your mom. She will end you. You know, <laughs> you've heard moms say, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. Well, they can't do that biblically because that's taking a life. But um, there's, there's a lot of reality to that. They can make your life harder. Uh, they won't make you the meals you want to be made. You know, they can do anything. They don't bite the hand that feeds. Um, but practically, we need to love our mother and our father enough to at least give ear to the advice they would give us to honor them with our lives in a way that essentially uh, causes us to bring honor to them by the way we behave. Um, but also in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, uh, Paul picks up on this same theme, which again, I point out to you that Timothy is the pastor of the Ephesian church at this time. So he's leading the same people that Paul has already written this truth to. Ephesians chapter uh, 6, verse 2, he says there, um, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Then he quotes from Exodus, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. He says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And so there's instruction and there's discipline, but there's just a simple honoring or respecting of those who brought you into the world. And, and as a result of that, we will live long. So I jumped ahead, but what I want to point out is that the body of Christ, whether we look at it this way now or not, we should, is the family that we will spend eternity with. Many of us uh, give preference to our families our blood families. And I get that because we live with them. We've known them our whole lives. They've either wiped our hineys or they have uh, been with us through hard situations. And we should do that to honor them. But what I want to point out to you is that the way that Jesus treated his family was a little differently than we treat our family. 
And they're gonna be, there's going to be a little pushback when you read these passages because Jesus, uh, the way he, we, we look at it is blood is thicker than water, right? You've heard that phrase, blood is thicker than water. But I would submit to you that the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. And I say that because when I started following Christ, my church family embraced me and took me through things that my family just straight up didn't understand. When I stopped doing all the things that, that Christ was like, this is not for you anymore, my family treated me like I wasn't even related to him anymore in a lot of ways. Now, they still loved me, don't get me wrong, but they did not like the fact that I wouldn't spend as much time uh, drinking with them. You know, I, I, at the same time, they forgot the fact that I stopped being sarcastic towards them and I started honoring them. You know, so they, they didn't like, they liked what came out of it, but they didn't like that I had a preference for the body of Christ. They didn't like that I treated them like family. They thought I hated them now in comparison to the way that I treated my church family. But Jesus said, unless you love me more than you love your own family, then you will not have any part in me. And loving Jesus means that we love his people. And so um, I, want, I have a couple of passages for you. Luke chapter 2, the infamous passage where even Jesus' parents lost him. That should give you comfort if you've ever lost your children. It gives me comfort. I lose my children all the time. But in Luke chapter 2, oh man, Kelly heard that. Um, Luke chapter 2, in verse 41, it says that uh, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the custom of the, fe- the days as they returned, uh, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been with the company they were with, they went a day's journey and then they started to look for him. They sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him, and he was in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, what have you why have you done this to us? Why didn't you stay with the group? Your mother and I were worried sick, you know? And, and what Jesus says seems somewhat uh, disrespectful. Uh, she said, look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Jesus said to them, why did you seek me? <laughs> well, because you're our son. Like, wh- what kind of sarcastic question is that? But then he says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, that's fine for us because we recognize that he is the son of God. But they still have their little boy. Joseph's going, wait a minute. My, your father's business is back at home. We're, we need to be working. We've been off for a couple days. I got projects to do. We're carpenters. We build things. Larry down the road has a yoke oxen or an oxen yoke that we haven't finished yet. Your father's busy. Get home. But it doesn't say that he responded that way. It says they did not understand the statement when she spoke to them. They didn't get it. They're like, all right, well, let's go home. But what Jesus was saying is, I have to be about my father's business. And that his father's business was at the temple with the people of God. 
And so, um, in the same fashion, if you go to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is a little bit older. He's not living in the house anymore. He's got disciples. Um, he's leading people and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 46 says, while he was still talking to the multitudes, recognize he's been healing people by this point. He's speaking to multitudes of people, and his family still thought he was kind of crazy. Like his mom knew that, you know, he was supposed to be the Messiah, the deliverer of the people of Israel. But at the same time, he starts traveling around and sharing the truth with people. And in her eyes, he's kind of, he's stretching himself a little too thin. You know, hey, you're kind of losing some weight. You need to get some meat on those bones. You know, settle down a little bit. I'm glad that you're serving God, but you need to take care of yourself. And you know what? You haven't been showing up to the, the family meals. What's your deal? Now, obviously, I'm putting some of that in there, but I'm trying to make it a little bit more relatable to us. Because if your son stopped showing up at family meals and started traveling all over the, the state, um, you'd start to get worried. You'd start to think, you're a little, you're a little too zealous. We're glad that you got a little religion, but you need to, you know, still be at home at a certain time, and you need to respect us, and you need to do kind of what we have in mind for your future. And what it says there is, uh, one sa while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside. They couldn't even get in, seeking to speak to him. And one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They, they want to have a word with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, he asked the question, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples who had already been sitting there listening to him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. And look at this. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if you're a mom, your kid says this to you, I've said, I, by the way, I've quoted this passage to my mom. It did not go well for me. I, it's true, but I didn't present it in a way that she could receive it. All she did was cry and get upset with me. And that I've had to overcome those scars. See, I was saying something that was true. I didn't necessarily say it in love. But I was trying to tell her I must be about my father's business. And I wasn't wrong in that. But the way that we approach one another should be important. And Jesus, I think I read a little bit into this. I think I saw Jesus as just being real poignant. He was teaching the group around him that the kingdom of God is a totally different order than we, what we might presuppose. But I think it's interesting because we'll see later his love for his mom. was He didn't just cast her off and go, you know what, I'm about God's business now, heck with you. He wasn't like that, but he was still about that. you know. And so I'll, I'll bring that around so you might have a little pushback in your heart like, wow, I don't know if I want my kids to treat me that way, but you'll see how the end of the story comes here in a little bit. So next slide, verse 3 um, through 16. So he kind of turns the corner. We've talked about um, how we are to treat individuals in the church, but there was a particular ministry that was one of the first ministries in the early church, and that was ministering to widows. Now, if you know anything about Scripture, you know that God cares desperately and deeply about those who cannot provide for themselves. He talks about widows and orphans. And in the Old Testament, when people start, nations start messing with widows and orphans, it's almost as if God goes out of the way to knock them off their block. He, he puts the smack down on them. He 
Nations can do all kinds of other sin, but all of a sudden when they, especially the nation of Israel, start neglecting widows and orphans, he gets very, very personally offended, and, and he takes it up with them very, very strongly. So in Ephesians, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, he says, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So there was widows within the church that needed taken care of, and they would take them into their number, and essentially have a roster, as it were, and they would have a program to make sure they had food, to make sure they had a place to stay, and to take care of them financially for any bills they might have. But he says there's an exception. You have to be qualified for this particular ministry. And so he says there, honor widows who are really widows. Now, a widow is a widow, right? Someone who has lost their husband is a widow. But he says, uh, be sure that they're really widows. In other words, in the eyes of this particular instance they had going on, we need to make sure that they don't have anybody else in their lives that can take care of them. And so he says, uh, those who have children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. So these children and grandchildren, there's an expectation among believers. If you've got somebody in your life that is not taken care of, you need to be taking care of them. And if you're not, he's going to go on to say later in verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith. He's not letting God actually rule his actions. And he's worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> wow, that's rough. But God cares about our relationships, how we take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. So he says there in verse 5, She who is really a widow and left alone, or the word being desolate in some translations, she trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. So if you want to be taken care of by the church, you don't just get to live however you want. He says, if you want to be called a widow for this particular program and, and taken care of, then you need to live a godly life. You need to be someone who trusts God, who prays for others night and day. There needs to be a service that you provide. Now, that's not what he means. He's not saying you have to do these things to be taken care of. He's just saying there should be some character in this person if the money from the church is going to go to provide for them. And then, he says in verse 9, don't let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Well reported for good works, she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Wow. If she's doing all that stuff, I, I, you would think she'd be surrounded by people that would want to reciprocate, right? But that's not how it works in this world, you know. Uh, Jesus served all kinds of people, but that didn't mean he had a, gained a bunch of friends and had influence. So um, these ladies, what he's saying is this isn't a to-do list. This is just a lifestyle that they've taken up, that they, if they truly are godly ladies, would have these things in their life. And and one of which I want to talk about, he says, uh, under 60 years old. But the idea was, is if they're over 60, maybe sometimes they wouldn't be likely to remarry. 
and so they wouldn't have anyone to provide for them. And now I get that this is a cultural thing, but I think it's also a good rule of thumb. He goes on in verse 11, he says, don't, he says refuse the younger widows. So if you have a, a young lady who's lost a husband, she's pretty likely to remarry, you know? And so rather than taking them in, uh, why don't you let them remarry? And he's going to go on to say why. He says, refuse the younger widows for when they have begun to grow wanton. That's not something you get at a Chinese restaurant, by the way. Sorry. Um, he's against Christ, they desire to marry. In other words, when they kind of get to a point, they've bereaved, they've gone through the process, and they, they're like, you know what, I might want to have a family. I think I'm, I'm not over my previous relationship, but it's time to move on. She might want to remarry, and in that case, um, if she's been taken into the number of the widows that have been performing duties for the church, um, she's going to have to essentially go, hey, I got to go, see ya. So rather than taking her in and then pushing her out on her own, just don't take her in and make sure that she's provided for, but, but also let her remarry. And he's going to go on to give reasons for that. He says uh, they, they desire to marry and then they have condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And this is kind of probably where the, the Catholic Church and, and those that have nuns kind of get their basis for what they have. Because they're saying, hey, we got these ladies, they want to take a vow and essentially marry Christ, become married to the church and serve him, but you've seen movies, uh, what's the one movie, uh, The Sound of Music, where she's kind of contemplating becoming a nun, and then she's like, meets this guy who has all these kids, and I actually really enjoy that movie, so I, you know, I like, I like musicals apparently and don't want to admit it, but my point is, is that she, she desires to be married. And so rather than feeling condemned because she's already taken this vow, she gives up that vow and she becomes married. And so uh, in the church, uh, I don't see any precedent for nuns making a vow of celibacy, but I do see uh, the opportunity here for a lady to remarry. And he says also in verse 13, besides, if they're provided for by the church and they're younger, he says, many times they learn to be idle. They wander about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. And so you know as well as I do, all of us desire to have more free time, but many times if you have more free time, that's when you get in more trouble. You start saying things or talking to people or, or doing things that you ought not to be doing. And so he says that it's better for them Verse 14, he says, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house. And in doing these things, not that this makes a woman who she needs to be, our identity should not be in those things, but in doing these things, you're not giving opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. And he says there in the next verse, for some have already turned aside after Satan. So I want to make a point here that many times turning aside to Satan or giving opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully through us is by idleness. Our idle lives, if we are not filling them with good works to serve the Lord, will serve someone. And I thought about this this morning, and it's interesting. Um, we would never, hopefully, take our car 
leave it outside of prison, idling, right? Someone were to escape, you've essentially helped them not only get away, but have a getaway vehicle. And many times by our idleness, by not having our life consumed with good works, uh, especially here in the case of those who are older and maybe they have lost uh, their husband. My, my own grandmother, she lost her husband and she had taken care of him for 10 years. And after he passed, I expected her to kind of go to herself and be, you know, but she all of a sudden had this freedom that she hadn't had before. So she started going to see cousins and aunts and uncles and people she hadn't been, she hadn't been able to travel because my grandpa had had so many strokes. So all of a sudden she saw an opportunity to redeem the time. So now on Thursday nights, their church has a, a meal that the community can come in and have. So she goes and she serves. She takes food. Um, she, she makes quilts for all her grandbabies. She's, she's looking for ways to be a blessing because now she has the freedom to do that. And, and I love this because the Lord desires that. There is not a retirement age for Christians. There isn't. If you start dialing it back because you're like, I did my time, you're missing the point because we only get to lead people to the kingdom of God and to introduce them to Jesus in this life. And once you die, you don't get to do that in heaven. It's not a joy that we get. So in this opportunity, he says, I desire that these younger widows would find something useful and constructive to do with their time so that they don't allow Satan to work through them. I think about um, the show Andy Griffith because in there you have Aunt B, right? Really nice lady. Uses her time, uses her talents for others, but she cannot stay off the phone. And I think about gossip, okay? Gossip is not just talking about others. Gossip is also giving ear to others. If you got people in your life that gossip, it's your responsibility to not give them an outlet to speak it into. Because here's the other side of it. Not only are you benefiting them by saying, hey, that's gossip, maybe we should talk about something else, gracefully, but you're also not giving yourself something that you are going to want to tell someone else. Gossip has a funny way of, like, it's just, like, I got to tell somebody. This is too juicy, you know, and, and I'm just as bad. We got to be careful about that. Now, some of these ladies might have been like, hey, I wasn't gossiping. I was just making sure they knew so they could pray. Uh uh-uh. uh, beware. That's gossip. You know, if you really think it needs to be prayed about, pray about it. And if you want others to know, then when you're in a group prayer meeting, pray about it. And then they can pray, and then it's brought up in the correct light. Um, so, just a, a harsh word or a strong word against gossip. And I say that because where do we live? We live in a very small town. You start gossiping about others, uh, it catches wind quickly and it gets back to that person and then they find out that you said it and as believers uh, we're supposed to quench that stuff you know james says that the tongue is an unruly fire that sets entire things ablaze Um, if that's the case then we need to be firefighters we need to be people that that douse it with water so he says for some have already turned aside after satan so those who qualify no one to take care of them someone who's desolate a faithful disciple, a woman of prayer, someone who's living for eternity, not for earthly pleasure, someone who's older and not likely to remarry, and one who was loyal, loyal or faithful wife. Now, if somebody's remarried, uh, all it means is that they have one husband 
and that they're being faithful to that marriage. They're not going outside of it. And then a life filled with works that display the fruit of our faith in Jesus. Someone who actually has a life that, that lives out what Jesus has taught. So next slide. Why the restrictions? Well, we don't want anybody to be an unnecessary financial burden. Um, also, if there's children and grandchildren to take care of their own family, he's, he's, he's already said, we want to give them an opportunity to be a blessing, to, to live out their faith in the season of life that they're in, to take care of those who are older than them who have gone before them. And also, remarriage would prevent from fulfilling their obligation to the church and also remove her need for financial provision. Anyone with poor character may be tempted to be an idol and a gossip in a busybody. And we don't need any more of that. In the body of Christ, in the church, there should be none of that. So next slide. The last verse, verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve, relieve them. Do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are in really widows. So if any man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. That's a word to the church. James chapter 1, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in God's sight is ministering to widows and orphans in their time of need. And, and the word there that he uses in James means to met, let them be with them. In other words, to go alongside, to support them. Um, and then in John chapter 19, uh, here's where it comes back around. We're, we're back to the, how we ought to treat our family. So turn to John chapter 19. John 19, and it's in verse 25. Jesus is being crucified. He's on the cross when this passage is written down. Well, when this is what the account is. So there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother... The disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now this is not like we would say woman to someone in a disrespectful way. This is actually an endearing term. John 19, verse 24, yeah. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And look at this last part of the verse. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. So, many believe that Joseph, by this point, is dead. He's died. And so there is Jesus' mother. His, her son is dying. He's her only hope for being provided for and supported. He's being crucified for the sins of the world. You know, no big deal. It's a burden for Mary, too. But she's a widow. So what's God's provision for her? Well, Jesus, in his dying breaths, says, Hey, John. Take care of my mom. And hey, mom, look out for John. You guys are going to need each other. I'm going to be gone. And so how important do you think that widows are to God? If Jesus himself, bearing the sins of the world in that moment, takes the time to go, hey, why don't you take care of my mom for me, please? Interestingly enough, Jesus who said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters in Matthew 12? also used one of his final breaths before death to take care of his mom, who many believe had been widowed by that point. So next verse, or next uh, slide. 
How we take responsibility for each other as believers proves whose kingdom we truly belong to. If, if we don't take care of widows and orphans as the church, how can we expect the world to ever see that as a necessity? And then in John chapter 13, this is uh, the final verse. John chapter 13, verse 31. So when Jesus had gone out, after washing their feet and, and being betrayed, the Son of Man is glorified, he said, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. And then he says this word, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so how we treat people is of vast importance to the Lord. It shows us and it shows the world that we are actually disciples of Jesus in the way that we take care of people. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments were about our relationship with God. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. You're not to make an idol. Um, you're to have, uh, honor the Sabbath. You know, these kinds of things. But then, after that, every one of the commandments is how we treat people around us. And how we treat people around us shows whether or not we've effect, been affected by and received the love of God. So as we consider that, how do you love? Are you taking care of the people in your life? Are you loving like Jesus? If you need a reference, look at 1 Corinthians 13. I was at a prayer meeting two weeks ago, and I was just sitting there praying, and the Lord told me to go to 1 Corinthians 13. I started reading it, and I just realized how little I love people, like Jesus loves me. So maybe that's you this morning. So we're going to take communion. Um, before that, I'm going to read a couple of verses from... from uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. As always, um, I want to encourage you. Uh, what Paul said is that uh, when we take communion, uh, we're doing something that Jesus gave us to do. But he also said in verse 27, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man or woman, examine themselves, and let him eat of the bread and the drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are actually weak and sick, because they took the Lord's communion without, uh, without considering where they were at personally. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. And so this is an opportunity for us to examine ourselves to see if we truly are disciples of Jesus and, and what ways that he's calling us to repentance and to be renewed. So it's a time to consider that. So we're going to go ahead and, uh, and at this point um, I want to give you guys an opportunity to contemplate but also to come and grab the communion elements at your leisure. I know we're kind of short on time because we got started late this morning, but I do want to take time to do this.